A man, no matter how civilized, is still an animal, and sometimes a dangerous one. Men are responsible for the lion's share of assault, rape, murder, and warfare. Conventional wisdom chalks this up to socialization, that men are taught to be violent, and they are. But there's more to it. Violence is a dangerous desire, a set of powerful and inherent emotions we are loath to own up to. And so, there remains a hidden geography to male violence, an inner ecosystem of rage, dominance, bloodlust, insecurity, and bravado, yet to be mapped. Mad Blood Stirring is Damon Fairless's first-person travelogue through this territory as he seeks to understand the inner lives of violent men and ultimately himself. So that's the description of Mad Blood Stirring by Damon Fairless as uh, provided to us by the publisher. Um, we, of course, myself and Nate Sager, are very happy to have him join us today. And I'm sure you're wondering, as a fan of Sports Lit, how this topic uh, applies to our theme of talking to athletes and authors. Well, I'll tell you. In its 365 pages, Damon weaves into the narrative MMA, high school football, the Vancouver Stanley Cup ride of 2012, and a road trip uh, with the TFC supporters, the Red Patch Boys. So, Damon, or sorry, so Nate, definitely uh, uncharted territory for us, but I, I'm very pumped up about this because this is exactly why I think we started the podcast was, you know, we wanted to cover the gamut and, uh, and challenge ourselves. And I think this is a real big, uh, step in that direction for us. Yeah. Like everyone, we're always, you're always looking for the sports book that like explains the culture to people who maybe aren't a fan of that particular sport or that particular strata of the sport. Uh, but this is something that kind of you know reverses that so it's unintentional good timing like we like our you know our episodes to be evergreen but here we are recording with the author of mad blood stirring when a lot of canada is engrossed in like the stanley cup playoffs or the toronto raptors trials and tribulations in the nba playoffs like i'm a raptor fan and i can't you know some games i can't even watch because i'm just like i'm gonna get too much anxiety doing this (laughs) i'm gonna go somewhere else and just constantly hit f5 and update the score and whatever whatever may be may be uh, Damon Fairless, you know, he's not a professed sports guy, but after reading this, I felt like trying to understand like sports fans, why we are the way we are trying to understand why people root for teams, why people, why people get carried away without having read this book. It's like, it's like trying to like run a car with no oil or trying to study engineering, you know, without learning, learning calculus. It's like, as, I think as Damon put it when he was on CBC's As It Happens, he's looking at the deep roots of the emotions that lead to people acting out violence. And and it's also maybe a, a call to not, you know, because I think there's a tendency when something really bad goes down in sports, like like the like the riot or, or like, uh, you know, Todd Bertuzzi's attack on Steve Moore about 15 years ago. There's always an attempt to isolate it just to the actors. And he's saying, no, no, it's not. It's it's that this is something that's pervasive and universal and, and transcendent. And it's all about, you know, how we manage it and make make sure, you know, things don't escalate to a certain point. So because he's talking about, you know, this irreducible need for dominance. So, yeah, it's, it was a challenging book. I'm not going to lie. Like, it, it must have taken me about four separate tries <laughs> to come up with, like, what am I going to ask this fellow? Like, you know, he's a neuro, guy with background in neuroscience who's a, yeah. who's a journalist. Uh, you know, I, I... What's my, he doing on this program? Yeah, I mean, my, my peak of my career was asking 17-year-olds to talk about the third period, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it's certainly going to be exciting to have him on um, uh, our first Sportslet episode uh, in a long time. This is season two, episode three, I believe, is it not? Uh, big delay, of course. There was the Olympic break. Both me and you were, were pretty busy with that. And, um, yeah, we're, we're about to get the ball rolling again with Damon, and, and uh, we're excited to have him on. So without further ado, Sportslet season two, episode three, we're about to be joined by Damon Fairless, author of Mad Blood Stirring. I'm Neil Acharya. And I'm Nate Sager. And welcome to Sports Lit. Well, as we said off the top, we're very excited to have my good buddy, Damon Fairless, in the house. Damon Fairless, of course, the author of Mad Blood Stirring. Uh, and we told you a little bit about this book off the top. So, Nate, should we just get right into it right now? And, and, and first of all, Damon, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. How many interviews have you done so far since the release was March 1st? Uh, yeah, I can't. I don't know. Like uh, a few dozen, I guess, maybe. Um, but this one will be the best. <laughs> well, <laughs> no pressure on us. <laughs> we were talking about this yesterday. Um, and I guess before we get into formal questions, you did happen to do, um, this is not a sports book, but this is a sports program. You yeah. did happen to do two uh, interviews um, on sports programs, yeah. maybe more. I know you did um, uh, Jeff Blair's show, yeah. perhaps, yeah, and yeah. then Bruce Dobigan as well, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. His podcast. So, um, did you find questions from the sports media a little different from what you were getting with everybody else? Um, I don't know about different, but I actually found, I think, uh, I think guys who follow sports and sports reporters might get some aspects of this book in a way that uh, other folks don't, like in a, in a way that I was kind of hoping people would. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I'll get right into my first question, um, and that is... Um, you're not necessarily a, a sports fan. In fact, one of the things that really blew me away was many years ago when we were hanging out, you once told me you didn't understand how certain people, you could never, you never got behind a team. You're not a Raptor fan, Leaf fan, so to speak, right? Um, but, you know, I'm watching the Leaf game last night, and even me, my journalistic walls coming down, you know, and I'm like kind of rooting for them a little bit. And then I'm like, I kind of thought of that. I said, you know, I remember at that time, I thought that was so foreign. And is that... Some kind of is that does that tie into this tribalism you were talking a little bit about? You know, I've, I've thought about it a lot, and one of the things that I found really interesting, like being such good friends with you and knowing how into sports you are, is like I've, I've actually kind of because of our friendship had to question that whole stance of mine, and I, I think it goes back to um, I think it goes back to a certain kind of like vigilance I have where I have this like need to just kind of be this lone wolf and I get really um I get really like and I feel I feel like I'm criticizing you here but I get really like distrustful of the whole getting behind a team sport thing and the weird thing is is that I really I like athletics I like like what what the guys do on the court or on the ice or whatever is amazing um and uh and and so I think it's like I, it's admirable and I envy it but for me I'm so so worried about somehow uh, losing my independence that getting behind a team is something that I have always been really skeptical of in a way that uh, and I and in a way that I kind of like distrust in myself and my wife is always like 
dude, there's nothing wrong with like cheering for your baseball team, cheering for like my brother is bananas Raptors fan. He's a big soccer fan. My wife loves sports, loves the Blue Jays, and I'm like, and I'm like, I'm like, I'm like a crotchety old man when it comes to not wanting to get behind a team. It has, I don't think it has anything to do with sports. I think that I don't trust a group mentality getting behind anything. And I think I could probably chill out a little bit about that. In fact, like when you and I were working on the Invictus games together, I was like, it was, it was like for me, I was like, oh, this is like, I don't know, this is pretty good. Like, I don't know why I'm such a weird guy. Like, I'm so weird when it comes to sports. But that's a little different too. I mean, there's a lot of individual yeah. events yeah. in Invictus. There was a kind of, there was obviously a, a military kind of backdrop mm-hmm. to those games mm-hmm. as well. So maybe that's what, uh, what did it for you as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I I don't know. You're all you're you may you may not support teams or get behind that, but you're certainly you know you participate you participated in in martial arts, mm-hmm. yeah, jujitsu, yeah. and is that kind of a a way to to kind of if you were just to go and pump iron, let's say, would that not as be, not be as big of a release as if you got to go one on one with a guy and. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I mean, I think exercise, like sport, athletics, exercise is really important to me. Uh, like keeping me sane and not wanting to kill people <laughs> or kill myself, maybe. But like you know, there is. Uh, I mean, I think I like I got into the martial arts pretty late, like in my late teens, because I didn't do like I did one year of rugby in high school. But I was really just I was again I was I like, kind of freaked out by being part of a and I was I was crappy at at sports when I was a, a teenager too. So because I grew up in this household where um, you know being kind of being part of the athletic scene uh being part of a sports team thing was really like my parents were real kind of anti-establishment people so i was not encouraged to go out and and like i didn't i wasn't taught the uh very positive things that come with being part of a of a team right right and i i, I genuinely think that there's a ton of positive stuff to go with it right but i didn't i wasn't taught that stuff when i was younger so i was super suspicious so when i wanted to be physically active i didn't know any of the rules of any sports i didn't know about the team mentality like how to help your team play so i did these individual things like martial arts right so so maybe you know nate you can touch on this too i mean perhaps your parents uh, being who they were and you talked about them in the book um kind of being is counterculture the right word uh, um so they were probably you know early adopters of maybe examining jock culture for what we later knew it to be you know and and what it can cause and the alienation for some so you know it's not all bad that you were you know not necessarily behind team sports it's interesting though because like when i think about my daughter both my wife and i are like yeah we want to get her involved in team sports so it's kind of like the pendulum swung pretty hard one way with me right and i want to bring it back to the center um mm. yeah yeah i, I wondered uh, how much uh, your eyes were opened there's a set passage in the book where you focus on a, a teacher coach at a you know he's coaching junior varsity football at a downtown high school a lot of kids were you know first yeah. first generation new canadians uh you know obviously football's in a as a game, it's right right now going through sort of a, I guess, a bit of a shake up in terms of becoming a safer game. I think I give football a better chance of adapting than hockey, to be honest. But that's another podcast. 
But what did you observe about its value as a participation sport, especially for 14 and 15 year old boys who are, you know, a lot of them have the veneer of bravado, but really underneath their eggs so soft. I always thought it was a good game for yeah, confidence. No, I, you know, so that, there's a chapter I'm profiling a, a, a guy who's a friend of mine, and I, I give him a pseudonym, Gord, in this. But yeah, so he's he's coaching a junior football team at a downtown high school, and it, 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 like spending time with him and watching him with his kids and what he was doing with them was uh, I like super enlightening and beautiful. So this is a guy who he spent he spent time in prison. When he was in prison, he had to uh, he had to get he had to beat a guy down to survive. And he's kind of always dealt with this like, oh my god, I did this terrible thing. He's giving back. This is a guy who wanted, you know, people were saying you should be a gifted teacher and stuff. He wanted to work with these kids because he knew what it's like to be in tough neighborhoods and be a young guy who's afraid. But like you say, you have to put that veneer of stoicism and toughness on you, right? And so the thing is, is that like you've got these two roads. You can go down that road all the way and eventually the toughness will take you into places where you actually have to be tough, actually have to beat guys up, maybe get into really hard heavy duty things or you can figure out how you can be like a, a strong guy without succumbing to the temptation of becoming a tough guy and that will end your run as a successful human being eventually, right? Because you'll get into shit, right? And so he has this amazing way of getting guys onto this team and then once they're there teaching them how to be men and he's like he you know in this day and age we're not really into being talking about men being men but he is and i think the value in what he's doing is super important because guys young guys are attracted they want to be guys they want to be men they want to be real men Mm -hmm. and they don't really have good role models for that because the men that they're thinking of are tough guys and the tough guy thing is a dead end and so Gord, as I call him, is creating this other channel saying, listen, you can be part of this team. You can bring honor to your school by having this set of, of honorable behavior often on the field. You will only achieve success on the field if you follow the playbook, that, that all the plays that we've drilled into you. And he keeps his play. He keeps his like eight plays, a dozen plays maybe. And his whole point is like, it's not about elaborate, baroque, complex plays. It's about, you know what your job is. You do your job. And you know what? If you don't get that ball further down the field, you've still done your job and you've done what we have set out as a goal for our team. And you've contributed to the team and you've made us better by doing that. And you know, he told me, he's like, I don't give a shit about winning. I give what I want to do is make these men and make these boys into men. And, the, and, and the, so that you see the boys, they want to be part of this team. It allows them to be, t- to be kind of tough guys, to be brave, strong dudes without becoming, uh, you know, succumbing into the criminal you know, lifestyle. It gives them honor among their peers because they're in a tough neighborhood. They're, a lot of them are in a tough neighborhood, and the thing that we think, you know, the thing that we forget about that we don't talk enough about is that young guys in tough neighborhoods, yeah, sure, they're tough. They put on that exterior, but they're scared, right? You know what it's like when you become a when you, I don't know about you guys, but I grew up like being like feeling like a boy and then getting into my adult body and still feeling like a boy and other dudes are sizing you up being like can I take that guy and, and like I, you can definitely take me because I'm a kid I just happen to have a big body right now right. and so dudes go around feeling that fear right and if you can give them a way to, to deal with that fear give them confidence that goes for that goes for uh, that you know that takes you a long ways and he's doing a great job was that was that a episode when you were researching the book? Was that sort of key in sort of breaking down your own vigilance about sort of group group activities? 
Was that yeah, you know that, yeah, that that had a lot to do with it. Um, I mean, I'm still like I still think that group activities tend to be uh, something we all have to watch out for, right? Um, but yeah, like I, I I thought you know if I were if I were in that school as a teacher, I'd want to volunteer to help Gord with those kids because you, you see the thing about tribalism is that it's not all good and it's not all bad. Tribalism feels good. And that can lead us into the temptation of thinking that our tribe is the righteous tribe and we should smote the other tribes in the world. But that, that, that feeling of belonging and want to be part of a tribe is like a really natural, important part of human behavior. It's what you do with that tribe that matters, right? And he's doing amazing things with that tribe. I want to backtrack a bit because I obviously talked uh, during the intro about a little bit about the book, just kind of, you know, with the publisher, the description of the book. Um, and I wanted to avoid having you talk about the headbutt story because that's been in every how every interview starts. But briefly, uh, just for those that you know, in your own words, want to know a little bit about we're, we're focusing on the sports angle. But generally, Damon, what what is this book about? Uh, in, in your own words, um, well, the book, um, the book for me. I'm going to talk about what it is about for me. But I wrote the book because, as you know, Neil, I have a tendency to uh as you know not not a guy who's done a lot of sports and a guy who's pretty um i don't know you could you could say effeminate or you know i'm a new enlightened man in the sense that i do a lot of domestic stuff and i don't care about a lot of the trappings of traditional manhood Mm. but at a certain point if I get angry enough, I will want to punch the fucking shit out of someone. <laughs> and I hope I can swear. It could be, yes, please. Uh, but, liberal no, but, in, but I think the thing is, is that what I mean is that there, there's an element of my personality, specifically when I see someone bullying someone else or just being an, an asshole, um, it's like a, a switch goes off. And I, so the, the story you're talking about is, you know, on the subway, there was a guy who's being drunk, who's being a jerk. I uh, intervened and eventually I ended up headbutting him and we got in a brawl that i've done those kind of things maybe you know probably under a dozen times but i have this switch that goes off that takes me from being this very uh liberal uh progressive uh annoying you know uh you know guy into someone who goes into a very old school set of values which is if you fuck with me i'll kill you and and it really feels like that like when that when i'm overcome by that rage it feels like that and so i started thinking like i you know like i've got these like counterculture progressive parents and that wasn't part of jock culture but i'll go to the most extreme edge of violence why what is it and i tend to think there's part of being a guy part of being a man a male that um is there's a set of emotions that we need to understand. And a lot of people have said, you know, that I think there's a lot of people who think that I'm kind of uh, coming down on guys or like some sort of self-hating dude. I'm not at all. I really like being a dude. And I really actually like that, uh, the sense that I get when I'm in that kind of uh, Hulk mode. It feels great. And I think we have to acknowledge that so we can control it, basically. Um, so you were att- attempting to understand this, mm-hmm. and, and so and you using your journalistic background and then your scientific background, uh, you wove this narrative uh, about the exploration of this concept of male violence with yeah. yourself and, and the whole the whole deal. Um, I particularly, me and Nate were talking about this yesterday. Um, I, I really found it interesting that uh, you know how you wove uh, the scientific studies in with the narrative. Was that 
uh, a challenge to do to make that interesting and fun yeah man that was like a really uh i sweated that out um you know but for a whole bunch of reasons first of all because you know a lot of science is like it's an interesting fact but it's dry to understand all the studies and stuff so figuring out how you like i wonder first of all write a book that was really readable that read like oh this is interesting this is a great story i want to know more you know like a page turner right so and like science facts often are like speed bumps right so you read a fact and you're like oh that's a drag i just want to know what happens to this guy right so figuring out how to place those things just right so you weren't slowing the reader down was it was like a technical challenge and then also the other thing too is like i'm not pretending i know everything about violence and so figuring out how to like talk about the science without being like basically saying well this is the this is why we're the way we are nobody like humans are too complex nobody really knows why we're the way we are i think you know i've got a reasonable understanding but figuring out how to like not like write a book that was like a simplistic kind of explanation of dudes was important too there's um there's a part I'm gonna get you to read. We always like to get the author to read a passage. I've got actually this is a quite a chunk here, about right. four or five pages. But uh, the reason I bring it up now is because I really feel like it ties into um, the idea of you talking, you know, using scientific examples and then going into for our purposes a sports example. So, what there we go. So we'll get you to read from the blue mark, All right. uh, 273. Before I get you to start. Just to the end of, I think, page 278, I believe it is. I'll, 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 I'll stop you, don't worry. Um, okay, yeah, for those yeah, for that sure. don't know, by the way, Damon has also narrated the audio book of this, so we're expecting a... Oh, uh, you, uh, you want a, a good performance. You don't know how many outtakes. I want a, <laughs> I want, I want, I want a Stratford uh, Festival-like performance Bro, uh, here, okay? All uh, right, I'll get on my, uh, all right. my British accent. For most of our history, we assumed we were unique as a species that we were the only one that killed its own. Murder, and especially warfare, were assumed to be the unique purview of human beings. The fact that we're so good at it, and so often relish it, seemed a sign that humans had deviated from the natural order somewhere along the way. Then, in 1974, Halali Matama witnessed something that turned that assumption on its head. Matama was a researcher studying chimpanzees with Jane Goodall's group in Gombe Stream National Park, Tanzania. She was following a group of chimpanzees, five young males and one young childless female, through the jungle. The chimps were behaving oddly, not the way a typical food-gathering party does. They were quiet and seemed extraordinarily focused. She trailed them over the border into the neighboring chimp troops' territory. This was unusual, too. The party quietly advanced on a solitary, healthy male feeding in a tree. They took him by surprise in a coordinated attack and pulled him to the ground. The five males bit him, stoned him, and beat him to a pulp. The female circled the fight, screaming and hooting. Then the attackers ran off, back to their turf, leaving their victim for dead. Matama had just seen a chimpanzee raid. At the time, she didn't know what to make of it. At this point, the study of chimps in their natural environment was only a few years old, and no one had seen anything like it before. A few weeks later, she observed another raid, and a year later it happened again. By late 1977, raiding parties from the first troop had killed all of the adult males and one of the senior females in the neighboring territory. Most of the females from the conquered group fled. A few were integrated into the invading troop. 
In three years of raiding, a community of chimps had been exterminated and their territory, its food sources, and several breeding females had been appropriated by the conquering force. Since then, chimp raids have been observed in Tanzania's Mahali Mountains National Park, in Senegal's Nikolokoba National Park, in the Thai National Park of Ivory Coast, and in Uganda's Kibali National Park. Primatologists now describe such episodes as an evolved behavioral strategy. Here's what we understand about chimp raids. They are aggressive assaults, not defensive. They are almost entirely a male affair, and they are especially beneficial to the males of the conquering force. The resulting land grabs translate into an eventual, an eventual increase in male reproductive capacity. More land and food means a larger carrying capacity, which means more mates for breeding males. A male chimp can entreat in a male chimp can increase his bloodline with every new mate, whereas a female's reproductive capacity is limited by gestational period and by the time and effort it takes to raise an infant into quasi-independence. Chimps are a patrilocal species. Genetically related males remain in their birthplace while females leave to mate outside the group. In terms of reproductive success, it's, the best, it's in the best interest of male chimps to initiate raids. A troop that is good at raiding is especially efficient at propagating the DNA of its related male members. Here's what chimps understand about all this. Sweet fuck all. <laughs> chimps are clever creatures, but they don't have the capacity to understand the long-term consequences of what they're doing. They don't raid because they're tactical wizards intent on empire building. In terms of intentionality, the researchers who study them believe the animals are more or less out to enjoy themselves. From all accounts, raiding seems to be an exciting adventure, an electrifying form of thrill-seeking. For chimps, war is not a conceptual thing. It's an emotional state. Chimps are not disputing ideological positions or responding to a political situation. They do not hate one another's gods. Chimps raid because it confers an evolutionary advantage. But from a chimp's perspective, that advantage is an incidental consequence. Their intentional goal, if it's even fair to call it that, is to get a kick. It's easy to want to make comparisons between chimp raiding and human raiding, just as it's easy to want to anthropomorphize chimps in general. But then nature has done most of the anthropomorphizing for us. Chimps share more than 99% of our DNA. Like chimpanzees, early humans were likely patrilocal. Most human societies still are and were the only two species in the animal kingdom that form male coalitions in order to eliminate members of the same species. And not to overstate the obvious, we both arose from a common ans and not to state the obvious, but we both arose from a common and not to state overstate the obvious, but we both arose from a common evolutionary ancestor. Before there were weapons or tactics, ranks or maneuvers, before there was language, or politics, or religion, or ideology, there was a feeling that led to raiding. If chimp warfare is the result of an evolved emotional state, as, uh, if chimp warfare is the result of an evolved emotional state, as close evolutionary relatives, and as a warring species ourself, do we share that state? And if we do, how does it manifest itself in our species? What if, before, 
What if, because it arose in us before we evolved language and self-awareness, it remains some unnamed thing in the shadow of our consciousness? What if, on occasion, it emerges from the shadows and catches us by surprise? Vancouver's downtown core was glutted. There were more than 100,000 people on the streets, maybe 150,000. This in a city of just over half a million. There was a giant screen in the middle of a public square. A sea of people had amassed beneath it to watch the final game of the Stanley Cup playoffs. The Vancouver Canucks were tied in the series with the Boston Bruins. This was June 2011. The Canucks were expected to take the series. They had made two Stanley Cup runs, once in 1982 and again in 94. They had faltered both times. This was their chance to make up for it. The city was electric with hope, but that energy had started to crackle with a dangerous charge. The streets were full of young men, their faces painted blue and green. A lot of them were drunk. By the middle of the third period, Boston was at, by the middle of the third period, Boston was ahead 3-0. It was clear Vancouver wouldn't recover. The crowd began the crowd began lobbing empties at the giant screen. Before the game was over, the cops started getting calls. Fights were breaking out across the city. Clusters of young men were flipping cars. A cop car on fire. An officer down. More vehicles burning. Columns of smoke rose up out of the canyons between office towers. The officer in charge of controlling the riot later compared it to a giant game of whack-a-mole. They'd squelch one uprising and another one would pop up a few blocks over. There was no epicenter. No single source of instigation. It was organic. It was like the fires that smolder underground for years and then flare up unexpectedly in the middle of a peaceful village. The fights grew more serious. One group got a guy to the ground and began kicking him in the head. There were stabbings. Somewhere a gun went off. Street fights snowballed into gang rumbles. The rumbles turned into mobs and the mobs grew powerful. They swarmed firefighters. The police bombed them with pepper spray and tear gas. The police bombed them with pepper spray and tear gas, but the mobs were too big. The men who composed them pulled their shirts over their faces and marched forward into the city to burn more cars. They set dumpsters and portable toilets alight. They tore down fences and smashed windows. Men and women looted stores and burned Boston flags. It was one of the worst riots in North American sporting history. Sports riots are common, especially during high-stakes playoffs. Something like half of all championship-level events in North America result in some sort of violence. In Canada, hockey riots have been especially destructive. Vancouver wasn't new to them. The city rioted during its 94 playoff loss to the New York Rangers. As common as sports riots are, predicting them, predicting any riot really, is little more than augury. Some experts have come up with contributing factors, things like a long series, a high-stakes game, a high-density urban gathering, a close game, and a large group of young, usually white men. As descriptors, these are spot on, but as an explanation, they're tautological. It's a bit like answering the question, why do people bake cakes by listing the main ingredients, flour, sugar, milk, eggs, baking powder. It brings you closer to the what but it does nothing to address the why. It doesn't help us understand what's going on in the minds of the otherwise normal men 
who for the most part make up the ranks of a violent mob. It's a description of the fuel that burns, but it doesn't help us understand the spark that sets it alight in the first place. In the 2011 Vancouver riot, about 140 people were injured. There were millions of dollars of damage. Initially, the mayor blamed it on a small group of hooligans and anarchists, but that wasn't accurate. More than 100 people were arrested that night. In the weeks that followed, the police scoured hundreds of hours of video footage and more than a million photos. They eventually laid over 1,200 charges against more than 350 people. It was natural to blame a group of outsiders, a malicious band of others, but for the most part, these were the city's own. They weren't hooligans or sociopaths. Most of them, under normal circumstances, weren't violent. The riot was not an attack on the city by barbarian invaders. It was a form of internal combustion. One of the riot photos went viral and is now infamous. It's a shot of a rangy blonde it's a shot of a rangy blonde kid in a Canucks jersey crouched next to a cop car. There's a rag, maybe it's a shirt, stuffed into the cruiser's gas tank. The kid's lighting it. He was a 17-year-old high school student named Nathan Cadillac. He came from a good family. His dad is a surgeon. At the time, he was in his last year of high school. He had a scholarship to the University of Calgary. He was also a rising star on the junior national water polo team. A few days after being outed on Facebook, Kodlak turned himself in to the cops and made a televised apology. There's no excuse for my behavior, he read from a prepared statement. He was flanked by his mom and dad. It does not reflect the values my family or my community raised me to live by. Halfway through, the kid broke down. For reasons I cannot explain, he continued, sobbing, I went from being a spectator to becoming part of the mob mentality that swept through many that swept through many members of the crowd. The city was furious. Kodlak became its pariah dog. The family got death threats. They had to leave home for a while. The police appealed to residents not to resort to vigilante justice. I called Kodlak's lawyer. I wanted to speak with the kid. I wrote him a letter. The lawyer promised me he'd pass it on, but I didn't hear back, and I wasn't surprised. The family was taking too much heat, and not just for the flaming car stunt. The apology had pissed people off too. There were a lot of skeptics who thought it was just a clever PR move, a way of mitigating an inevitable sentence. But I believed Kodalak. I think he probably was sorry. More to the point, I believe he genuinely couldn't explain what overcame him. I don't think anyone can. Not really. Not the mayor or the police or the enraged citizens not the mayor or the police or the enraged citizenry, not even the academic experts, and not the young men who feel this emotion well up inside them, and then, only after they've unleashed it, look in amazement at the destruction they've wrought. Very good. No, that, that, that yeah, no, it's great. I, I was actually, um, I, I probably, I probably made you uh, read probably more than I, and I should have for one sitting, but no, that, 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 that nails exactly what, um, yeah. And then it goes into you here. There's the last little paragraph about you. Um, just because we're running short on time. I, I, what I liked about that was you talk about the chimp raids and then you go and you use a specific example 
um, a, sport, well, a sporting example, which relates to us, and then it goes into you after a little bit. Yeah, I'm talking about, like, I used to bust out of my parents' house and go do minor vandalism at night with my pals, yeah. Right. And so you wanted to, I guess, I'll paraphrase this in another way. Um, there's a lot of times in this book where we, where I led into this talking about science mm -hmm. and how you use science. Um, do you think that we would understand things like this riot or let's say even rampant junior hockey, hockey fighting, which has now been completely curbed, I think, by David Branch, yeah, by, by some of the science of, you know, uh, you talk about uh, Christian Mosquito. He says, mm -hmm. violence has a sex and an age. I mean, do we... Well, yeah. I mean, like, I, I guess I tend to, you know, I, I include the science because I, you know, this is, this is not a book about science. It's a book about figuring out what makes us tick, what makes me tick, but what makes guys tick. And I use science as part of how I understand the world, right? So it was important to me to include. But I guess, like, part of what I'm, part of what I'm suggesting here is that we cannot understand why, I mean, it is mostly dudes who do... Like, there's 500 uh, dangerous offenders in prisons across Canada who are men. There's one female. So it's not that females don't do bad things and stuff, but if you look at, like, where violent, like who's responsible for most of the violence, it's us. And I'm responsible for getting in stupid fights. So the thing is, is that my point is, is that we don't like to talk about differences between men and women, male and females. We are really opposed to talking about potential biological factors that might help explain some of the behavioral differences. There are behavioral differences, absolutely. We know that. The statistics show that. There are biological differences. The research is very clear on that. But we don't want to talk about that because we get tied in knots suggesting that if there's biological differences, it means, well, guys are meant to be violent, so we shouldn't be responsible for violence, which is stupid. You know, where there's a, there's a, there's a genetic component to alcoholism, doesn't give us the right to down bottles of whiskey and kill people in cars, right? You know, we, we don't somehow jump to that conclusion. But if we don't acknowledge the differences between the men's and women's psychological states, particularly young men coursing with testosterone, how are we going to come up with constructive, positive ways to help young men figure out how to deal with that? Yeah. The one takeaway phrase I always had going back to the 2011 was, I think, Megan Murphy, who's a feminist writer in Vancouver, talking about like the mindless celebration of male professional sport. So it was interesting on, in your take on that. Like if this sort of, like I say, you get enough enough young men gathering in one place and bad things can go down. What, what responsibility falls on the people who promote these like big tentpole sports events to not let, to, you know, to try to let people know like this isn't like the be all end all of human existence. It, yeah, like I mean, it's a good, it's a great like, question because the thing is, sports aren't sports is not the sports is not the devil here. Uh, anything that will gather a whole, whole bunch of group of young guys together is something that we have to keep an eye on. That could be religious ideology. That could be socioeconomic factors. That like, in one of the big things, if you look at countries with huge proportions of young men, the civil unrest is extremely high. So it isn't like you know. Sports is not the issue here. We tend to focus. Oh, it's it's uh, jihadist uh, Islam. It's uh, sports. It's this at that. No, it's 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 big gatherings of young men who don't know where to put that energy. So one of the <laughs> things to get back to your question that I think we have to face is, uh, and no one's going to like this, but maybe don't serve alcohol at big, big uh, sporting events like this. 
Because the one, yeah, you don't like that at all. But no, but uh, as you, a journalist, I'm okay with it. As a fan, I'm. I'm no, I get it. I, no, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, I, I feel the same way. Like I'm not going to at a baseball game when he can't drink. No, but that's the thing too. And, and how 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 is the business going to work if you can't sell alcohol? But the fact of the matter is, is that if you want to temper this thing, uh, take away the substance that makes people disinhibited, right? I mean. I mean, uh, you know, liquid there, bravery, there, there, right? There is something to that. I, I think of like college football in the States, they get these crowds of 80,000, yes, 90,000 people in a town. Some t- towns that barely have that many people, they don't, but a lot of them don't serve alcohol inside yeah. the stadium. That's yeah. why I have to tell you. I mean, I guess here's the, here's, the, here's the problem is that being part of a big uh, group of people going for your team and having a bunch of beer and stuff, it all feels great. It all feels great, and the whole business is predicated on providing that to people so you want to take away that well you know who's going to make that business decision I don't even like this I'm saying that's a solution I don't like the sound of that solution but since you were asked you're giving a I'm giving you um, I'm giving you a risk but I think the other thing too is like we don't talk about this stuff like like we we right. all you know like we don't who sits that good dudes do not sit down and talk about their feelings generally speaking and then if we're going to talk about oh let's talk about where this thing that I like doing with my buddies can t- take this negative turn. We don't want to have that conversation because, I mean, even like I like when I was following, uh, you know, TFC. We're gonna get into okay. it. Yes. No, no, go ahead, please. Like I, I didn't really care to be part of this big fan group or stuff, but I knew that if someone started it with one of those guys, I was gonna get into the mix there. Right. Like, and even though I don't give a shit about soccer. And I didn't right. know any of these. I'd get into it because it feels good to be pulled into that. Well, that's the, I guess that's the last uh, question I guess we'll have uh, today. And uh, is is essentially that's that's what I was wondering. That this, is there a dichotomy between now you went and went with your buddy Nelson and a couple of guys and went up to an MMA kind of um, I guess event? Yeah, uh, yeah there was, there was a, a bunch of fights. Yeah, right. Uh, and you you know you're seeing I guess violence from that angle, and then you're on the bus with fans, you know, essentially that are going to watch a, a you know a sport where there's no never any fighting. In fact, there's a lot of diving. Um, <laughs> I, I, I I'm 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 just curious as to 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 and I don't know, maybe you maybe not even have looked at it in this way, but was it interesting to to, to follow follow sport from these guys in direct combat to a bunch of guys that. Some of them may never kick a soccer ball, but they're diehard over this team. Yeah, like like it was a way of me. It was a way of me like partitioning. There's a whole bunch of different aspects of violence that are interesting to me. That following the MMA fighters, I actually I'm, I'm a total hypocrite and maybe a bit of an asshole because I think I was easier on the MMA fighters who are legitimately punching people's lights out and strangling people and all that stuff than I was on the sports fans who followed TFC. Who, right. like you said, may not kick a soccer ball, and most of them will never get into a fight. But what I was interested in there were two different things. One was they like what makes a guy want to actually get into a physical fight. Right. Like why would you risk your health and future and all that stuff to get a shin bone to the head? And the other thing I was interested with TFC is like what's the group dynamic that makes people follow? You know, when 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 the um, Red Patch Boys first formed, like TFC was like not even existent and then they became really garbage for a whole right. for until yeah. very recently yep. this long stretch so why would they devote all this time and energy to backing that cause I mean I, I get it at one level because you support your local team but the but the point is is that it was there were two very different like elements that I was that I was interested in there and I think that 
because I because I've trained in fight gyms, I I understood that MMA thing a little more than I understood the group dynamic right. thing. But I think what was interesting about the Red Patch Boys mm. was that they were they were it was actually really similar to the MMA fighters. So MMA looks tough and the people get cuts and all that stuff, but it's way safer than getting in a street fight because you you're matched for weight, you're mm. matched for you know, there's, there's the, the, the fight matching generally that goes on pairs you with someone who um, is Similar a fair fight. It's not a 200-pound right. dude smashing a 120-pound dude like you see or in ours. Or five 200-pound dudes exactly, smashing yeah. the face. Exactly, yeah, because yeah. you looked at them the wrong way. Yeah. But what was interesting, like the MMA guys are like, they're doing, one of the guys in the book called, he liked it because it was controlled violence. Right. Like he hated fighting on the street, but he liked fighting in the cage because it was controlled. It let him taste that. Right that thrill of right. violence. And I think the Red Patch boys were doing a similar thing. These are good guys. They were all really nice to me, really respectful. They brought me in. Um, and their thrill was following their team and being part of that tribe, right? And they were, they they were not, they're not hooligans. I mean, I, I tend to think like wanting to be part of that tribe and stuff is silly. That's my own bias. But the thing is, is that they were kind of doing what the MMA guys do and that they were trying to um, have a controlled form of what in its extreme and terrible form becomes hooliganism in, right. in the UK. So there were like there were certain things they like they liked watching like hooligan movies. They liked some of the like I call it <laughs> kind of like dress up aspects of hooliganism. <laughs> right, but they're not hooligans, no. right? Um, but my point is that either of those sports, you know, once you and like for me too, like once you once you kind of crack the seal, it becomes it becomes harder not to it, it, it can become a little tempting. So, like, after be, being in a couple of fights, you're like, oh, that actually solves that problem pretty well. It becomes more tempting for me to get in a fight than it was before I had ever been in a fight. Those MMA guys, you know, you win a fight and then you go on to the next level, but you're fighting a tougher, harder dude. You have to train more. And the guys, you know, the like guys like the Red Patch Boys, like, there's always that uneasy, like, part of the thrill is that uneasiness of, like, well, what if right. the Montreal Impact guys there's one crazy dude there who yeah, comes at your buddy. Well, yeah. you're going to stand up for your buddy. I would have, on the road trip there, I would have stood up for the Red Patch Boys if that happened. Like, you get pulled into that right. thing, right? Whether you, you can be the most intellectual, cerebral, analytical thinker, but if someone, like, if someone, like I had beer with these guys and they've been nice to me, well, and someone picks on them, I'm going, like, well, you're fucking with my buddy. Bam. Well, you know, I mean, they, they talk a lot about that, in, and there's pl plenty of rivalries in soccer, but they talk a lot about the Rangers-Celtic, uh, you know, the Derby in Glasgow, which is divided along religious lines, mm -hmm. and they're saying accountants and doctors can mm -hmm. become, you know, guys will take a metal pipe to your head or at least in the past could on a on a on a saturday morning or whatever so yeah i can see where you're going with that um damon we are are right up against it so uh in uh, as i always say in in homage to nardwar we always like to give a relevant gift to our guests i'm afraid uh, of what this is so um don't be it's actually our most predictable one but I got a shout out in the end of this book, uh, uh, did, yeah. uh, and and so it relates to that. Please, uh, please read aloud. All right. If you can read my writing, Damon Phelis, thanks for joining us today on Sportslit. To show our appreciation, we'd like to enjoy an all expenses paid trip, TTC tokens included, to Gerard Street's India Bazaar. <laughs> Offer expires at midnight. 
So Sincerely, the management. So uh, I think, <laughs> to be quite honest with you, we're going to have to write another one. I don't think Damon can go to the India Bazaar after this. But I, I can't, I've had uh, some child care issues. Damon, I... I got to um, I got to quickly uh, uh, thank you again for coming on and thank, thank and sorry you. for making you read uh, the passage. I knew it when yeah. I, I I bit off a little more than I chewed or I could chew when I when I, I was like you know can, should I give him six pages? You know what I should have probably given you a little less because um, it, it are you saying of, I didn't do a good job? No, you did a great job, but it cut into our time, <laughs> and now I have to let you go. Um, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for um, diversifying what we what we talk about and what we really want to get at on the show, which is just. A broad spectrum when it comes to sports. The book is Mad Blood Stirring. The author is Damon Farrell. This is his first, uh, first book. My first book. And yeah. uh, I, well, there'll be more. Oh, God, I don't know. <laughs> it was so hard. All right. Well, thanks again, Damon. It was a blast. Thank you, guys. It was Until a pleasure. Next time. Thanks, guys. Thank you.